Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out. I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at Levy URM Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the September Discord Q&A. We've got Mr. Jacob Herman here. Hello, Jacob. Hello. How are you doing, sir? I'm fine. I'm sitting here in my control room after a day of bass recording. Awesome. Well, glad to have you here. Glad to be here. Yeah, always a pleasure. While we're waiting for questions to start coming in, I want to know a little bit more about your... uh, live room. What about it? Well, tell people about your studio setup, first of all, because it's pretty unique, pretty epic too. Yeah, it's pretty unique. It's um, in an old theater in the absolute center of Gothenburg, uh, in a theater that was built in 1850-something. They built the studio, I think, in 2005, and I took it over and now have it as my studio, basically. And yeah, it's, you know, control room and live room, but it's also patched up to the stage, the theater stage. Did you find it difficult to patch through walls built in the 1800s? (laughs) Luckily enough, I didn't have to do any of the studio build. That was was done by people who know more about that than me. (laughs) Okay. Thank God. Okay, we have a question. Um, First up is... Mr. Joe Scaletta. I just want to say thank you for doing this, Jacob. I was going to ask a base question per your post in the PPC, but I decided (laughs) to keep it on topic. So I wanted to ask, what's your approach when capturing overheads? Is your whole goal to capture the entire drum kit or are you only going after like symbols only? I'll start with saying you can can ask base questions. That's fine. (laughs) Yeah, ask ask about anything. Um, We're doing this particularly because... uh, Jacob recorded the Vola drums, and everyone wants to know more about the Vola drums, but you can all ask about anything you want. So would love to hear your bass question and then also this one. Okay, I can do that. So when tracking bass, what is your goal for capturing the room mic? And then I guess we could push that question for guitar caps too. Do you ever use room mics on guitars? I mean, yeah, sometimes. I think it's... um... 
I don't always do it, but that photo today was just too good not to share. So when I feel that there's a room for the bass in the in the frequencies and maybe even in the mix, I think you can't really get the high end in the same way with the close mic or the DI or whatever trick you use the same way that you can with the room mic. So if there is a possibility to... It's not so much a room miking the bass, but more like distance miking the cab. Uh, some people thought that I did it for the low end, but it's actually the other way around. I, I roll off the low end and use it more for mids and highs and try to blend that in with the 421 that I put on it and then later blending that with the DI that I'll process in other ways. Do you think that's because of the proximity effect of the close bike that you're getting that bump in the low end? I mean, low end is easy, especially low, low end. But that high end that comes from distance miking something is not the same at all. It's basically the same thing as a snare drum doesn't sound like a snare drum just close miked, but it's together with the overhead, so the kit mics, like the distance mics, that it actually sounds like you think of a snare drum in a room. And the sound of a, of a cab in a room, no matter if it's bass cab or guitar cab, it's just something that's so nice to sometimes capture. I don't do it all the time. Uh, I, I really don't do it, not even half the time. But when, when I feel there's space for it, I do it. And it's also some, something I do maybe if a song has, you know, the, it's busy and there's things happening, but then there's a section in, the, in a song where I can, you know, blend that in to make the listener fe- have that sound of being in front of the cab it's not really it's really hard to get that in just close mics and it's the same for guitar cabs i think same thing that i sometimes uh, use uh, mid-side miking for guitar cabs not always not even often but you know sometimes what was the original question again i forgot that one was about overhead mics are you focusing on capturing the drum set as a whole or are you just trying to capture cymbals only it can be depending on the sound and it's also depending on what other mics i have going on if the sound is supposed to be more of a natural sound then i try to think about the kit but if it's about the cymbals i will eq it differently and place the overheads differently sometimes one type of kit makes it more uh, makes more sense to do it um with the XY, sometimes a kit makes more sense to do it with a AB. I don't really have a rule for it, but I think it's different techniques for different um, results. For instance, when we did the recording for um, Vildjärta with uh, Buster Odeholm, uh, another URM favorite, uh, back in, what was it, February? I don't remember. But a couple of months ago, we did both an XY and AB but we did the AB with omnidirectional mics and the XY with cardioid pattern mics and to blend those together in a certain way. What about Vola? Vola was uh, AB because Adam has such a unique setup with all his stacks and he has a pretty tiny kit size-wise, like footprint-wise, and he only has floor toms and no uh, rack toms. So in order to make the big the kit a bit wider, we thought AB would be a, a good choice for that one. Makes sense. Okay, first up is uh, Toby Allen. 
Thanks, Jacob, for coming on Discord and uh, chatting with us. Oh, thank you. So the question, uh, when crafting tones, whether it's guitar, bass, or drums, where do you think the line is between what sounds good and what feels good? And what I mean by that is, like, what might sound objectively or technically good might not necessarily be what puts across the message of the band or the story of the song. So where do you draw the line between between that? Damn, Toby, that's that's a good question. That that's actually a great question. Um, how to answer that? I mean, sometimes a song or a sound for a band or it's based on feel. I I feel that Vola, for instance, is very much based on feel and trying to make a feeling come across. With other bands, it's more about get me right, uh, like don't misunderstand me but sometimes it's about the playing coming through and not so much of the feel the feel of the band is the playing but with vola it's more about the song and when crafting tones i think for me it's important to kind of work with the musician and make that musician sound like him or herself the best i can so that when he or she plays that person can feel yeah this is This is me playing. It's not you forcing a sound on me, but it's you shaping a sound that really fits either my playing or it fits this song or it fits this specific album or it's going to suit the person mixing it. Um, with the Vol album, I already knew um, Jacob was going to mix it and we've done so many um, projects together, so many albums together that I had a good sense of how he was going to mix it. So, of course, I shaped the tones uh, with that in mind to give him what he needs and not only... Like, I can't just enforce my vision without taking consideration of the band and the person mixing and whatever. But I think where the line goes, it's all about where you are in that moment. And I feel it's pretty easy... Uh, I think, to feel when a sound fits the production or fits the drummer or the musician or fits the the album we're doing, the, the, the sound of the album. And I shape the sound fairly much when recording uh, on the console or without boards and, you know, in different ways. It's one of those things where, at the end of the day, understanding that line is kind of where the money's at in doing this successfully. I mean, it's it's one of those things that you really can only develop through experience because it's kind of impossible to really verbalize, but it's one of those things that when you do it enough, you start to know, A, what it is that you're looking for, B, what it is that somebody else is looking for, and C, uh, when you've got something that actually brings their performances and... Uh, the tones you're going for to life like you just you just know like your ear is i guess tuned into that and uh it's one of those things that at the beginning you're just not going to you're not going to until you've done it a bunch of times yeah and i guess it's one of those things that you just develop so much that after a while you do it without thinking about it so much maybe in the beginning you're thinking consciously about certain things But after a while, it just turns into a thing that you have a sense for. But of course, it's a at the same time something you have to take into consideration. And 
think about all those aspects and also thinking about the other people involved. Like you have to think about the band, you have to think about the song and you have to think about the person mixing if you're, if you're more than one person involved in a project. Thanks, Toby. Okay, next up, we've got Scott Bennett. How you guys doing? Hey. Good, how are you? Doing good. Um, my question, I just wanted to ask, I think a lot of our audience is kind of like, they're working towards their audio careers and trying to get those next steps. And I was just wondering if there's ever been a time in your career where you've had a band that sort of has a pedigree or something where if you were the guy to mess it up, it would be really stressful and a lot of fingers would be pointed at you. And I think, you know, some of our people, some of our our community could be in this position where they just got this band that is a little bit higher echelon than what they're used to. And there's a lot riding on it. How should they deal with those nerves and how, like, how would they handle that situation to come out on top and obviously create more work for themselves? First of all, I have to Google what pedigree means because... <laughs> just high stature or like notable or respected, I guess. Oh, I see. But in like a formal sort of way, could you restate the first part of the question? So what would you say to someone who just got a contract with a band that's up and coming in order for them to nail it as much as possible and not let their nerves get to them? So by contract, you mean a production contract? Yeah. Okay. So, and is this the first time that this person has ever produced a band in their life? No, it's the first time it's a band that's of value or merit. So everyone that they've worked on up until that point has zero value. (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm asking you this for a reason because uh, generally it doesn't work that way. Generally, it's a gradual build. Um, if you listen, sorry to answer this for you, Jacob, but like if you listen to the podcast uh, and, you know, I'm saying that because hundreds and hundreds of guests at this point, um, there are some who get thrown into the deep end and suddenly they're working with like Guns N' Roses and they've never worked with anyone that big before and it's like this shock to the system. But more often than not, it's like one thing leads to the next, leads to the next. They've been doing it for a really, really long time and uh, they're just doing their job and it just so happens that a band gets, you know, a band is bigger than the last band they had or more often than not also a band that they worked on that was local level then got bigger and then came back. So I think that uh, that just the way you're describing it sounds a lot more Hollywood than real life, first off, because I don't think that it generally goes from working with nothing but garbage, zero value shit, to, wow, suddenly I'm working with an important band or something. Like, that generally doesn't go like that. So I think that generally by the time that happens, you're ready for it. But what do you think, Jacob? I think that all bands are important because you can learn so much from bands, even though they're not big name bands or whatever. But it's also, if you don't treat every production as something important, I think you're doing yourself a disservice, not only because, oh, maybe that band will become big eventually, but it's... I mean, one, there's supposed to be some joy in doing this and working with all levels. It's it's more about the band. But I also think that, as AL says, that I think it's something that gradually comes. And for those who are thrown in the deep end, that hasn't really happened to me, but I know people who it has happened to. And I, I think that they got the gig because they do have the right mindset and 
not like hinder themselves or think in the wrong way. I think that you have to think about any production as something valuable. Yeah, they're not there by accident. They didn't get that gig by accident. Yeah, but when it comes to like, how do you handle stage fright, but the stage is now your studio or someone else's studio, but how do you handle that nervousness? I don't really know. I, to me, it's always been about focusing on the, the people and the, the thing we're doing and making it, making it work no matter who it is. And of course, yeah, sure. I, it, of course, it's been, you know, sometimes you work with someone who is either big or means something to you personally, but it, it, it's, not re, it, it's not a difference. And if, if, you, if you think like that, I think it will shine through and it won't be the best experience for everyone involved. Yeah, I just got to echo that because I've had lots of situations and still have situations where doing something that you were only dreaming about or working with somebody that you were that you didn't really think was going to happen, you know, that kind of stuff. Or you're on a tour that's just like, holy shit, how did this happen? Those, when those kinds of things happen, the more you think about it in advance, the more of a disservice you're doing yourself. Because when it comes down to it, just playing a show or you're just working with a musician or we're just making a course with somebody, like it's the same thing that we do or that we've always done. Like maybe the stage is a little bigger or maybe the artist has a little bit more success or something. But uh, at the end of the day, you're just doing the same shit. Um, and you have to approach it that way. You can't treat it like it's some some crazy thing. Or like Jacob said, it's going to shine through. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. So next up, we got Joao Vitor. So I was wondering about your work with Diablo Swing Orchestra. Were you involved at all with the arrangement of the orchestral parts? And did you guys have to change anything or take precautions to make low instruments and, you know, big chords in the brasses uh, to be able to fit with the metal parts? Let me start with saying that if you haven't, those of you listening, if you haven't heard Diablo Swing Orchestra, you have to check them out. They're crazy cool. That wasn't my production. It was done here and I was involved in different ways uh, with recording and the engineering but that was actually um, my friend uh, Roberto Laghi uh, another Swedish producer here in Gothenburg and neither of us were involved in the arrangements that was done by different people in the band handling the arrangements for horns and strings and all their advanced guest musicians so I don't really have a good answer for that question I'm sorry um, that's okay, no problem. I do have some questions about the recording process of those instruments. I have no experience recording anything other than metal, and I was wondering how different it is to mic up those instruments. How do you find the right tones if you have to double or overdub a lot of stuff? Can you talk a little bit about these um, these different things for, for us? Thank you, Joao. It's a very thick sound, and by that I mean it's not thick because you have two guitars that are super massive but there are so many things going on and you have to take into consideration everything uh, we even had two different drum kits mic'd up here and sometimes they do play together but by the same drummer you have to think about the sounds working together like how how will you make the cello sound when there's a distorted guitar at the same time but those acoustic instruments 
I think the approach is that, and this goes for every time that, you know, like I said, that time was with together with Roberto and it was more his production than mine. But every time I do work with those instruments, you have to take into consideration that just like drums, but even more so because drums, you can, you know, you, you can tweak it and you use samples and you use room samples or you use reverb or whatever. But with those instruments like horns, strings, mallets, classical percussion, etc., choirs, what you capture is what you're going to use. And if you over treat those afterwards with whatever it is, EQ, compression, whatever, it's going to start sounding weird and they're going to start losing their place in the mix and the sound. So you have to be really aware of how they sound already in the uh, recording stage. I think that's very much the case with any instrument. And I always try to make sure that the things recorded do work, no matter if it's bass or guitar or drums or the instruments we're talking about now with Diablo Swing. But you can't, it's way harder to save an instrument that is recorded like that, because in order to capture that instrument, if we're talking, for instance, um, trumpet or cello or viola or classical percussion, you have to mic it from some distance, just like we talked about the bass cap just now, in order to make them sound like they should sound and do sound. So you have to be very, very aware of what you're capturing. And is is the mic angle the right? Is the mic choice the right mic choice? How, how is the preamp setting? How is the EQ setting? And be very careful in another way, because you can't go in and notch too much because it will take away the identity of that instrument and also make it kind of disappear. Awesome. Great answer. All right. Up next... Mr. Kieran Giles. Hey, uh, how are you doing, uh, Jacob? Nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you. Thank you. I was uh, looking through uh, your podcast the other day, actually, when you were uh, on that before. And there was some cool stuff you said about drums in that podcast. Um, But I wanted to see if you could expand a little bit on what you think makes a drum mix like really good. Because the biggest sort of thing for me was realizing how important rooms were um, because it doesn't, as you said earlier, it doesn't sound like a drum if it's not in a room. So if you had like any big realizations when you were mixing things, if you, if you, if you see any beginner mistakes that people make with their drum mixes, because I really do think that a great mix starts with drums. I agree. I think the most important thing, I mean, what, what's a great drum mix? I mean, I don't remember what I said in that podcast, really. It was it was before the pandemic, so everything is just lost. It's like 2018 or something, right? <laughs> That's crazy, right? I think a good drum mix is something that serves the song, and that is the most important thing of all. The second important thing is that, like I said before, that it's a sound that either the drummer feels that, oh yeah, that sounds like me, or... Yeah, it's a sound that I can identify with, meaning that is the sound I'm going for or want and, you know, that the song needs again. But if you take, there are so many great drum sounds that would never work in another production. You can't take the sound from a Led Zeppelin album and force it onto a Metallica album, but they're both great drum sounds. You can't force a uh, Toto drum sound and force it on a Tool album, but they're both great drum sounds. I think that a big mistake people do with drum mixes is not realizing 
frequency buildup in different mics. I think it's important to give specific mics specific reasons to be there or specific objectives. Like if I have a couple of room mics or a mono room mic, yeah, let's say that. I have a mono room mic and two stereo room mics. How will they work together instead of just placing them and you know, not thinking. I think it's very important to think about the finished drum mix already when recording so that you have some kind of vision for your reason to place the mics where you do or EQ them in a certain way. And that translates to the mix, even if you didn't record the drums. I think it's important to listen through the mics and see what what they sound like and see what it is you want to bring out in a mic and realize how they work together because no drum mic in itself is going to sound that great, but together they will. And you can't make everything sound like that goes for any mixing, really. You can't make everything sound big and ballsy and wide. Uh, it all has to work together. And I, th- I think that that's the when it like if I don't talk about recording, but actual mixing, I think that's a big mistake. Just focusing on each mic at a time and trying to make it sound good and not realizing how it works together with all the other room uh, all the other mics and also realizing what do I want to base my sound on do I want to base it on the close mics or do I want to base it on the the overheads and the close mics um if I have you know a couple of mics on the kick do I want to use all of them that that it doesn't you know you don't have to just because you have all of them that just means you have options so having that vision after listening through the mics if you didn't record them yourself and then realizing what do i want to bring out and how do they complement each other in a good way to bring the mix forward instead of trying to make every mic sound great and hope that they just work together that's that's not how mixing works i think yeah, the idea of intentionality, I think that beginners don't really have much intentionality in their work because they kind of don't know what they're doing. So there's a lot of randomness going on, like just hunting around, like trying to push frequencies, just like fucking with knobs uh, without much of a direction as opposed to doing everything for a reason. I'll say the other thing that uh, beginners tend to fuck up really bad on drum mixes is phase all over the place. That's one of the big ones. Yeah, for sure. And also I think with phase, you can even do things with phase if you if you experiment enough with phase when you're learning things, you can learn how phase actually can help you in certain ways. But I think just trying to make all the channels sound big and ballsy and just push that agenda on the on the tracks doesn't work and i see it happen all the time yeah i agree thank you karen yeah thank you hey everybody if you're enjoying this podcast and you should know that it's brought to you by urm academy urm academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love you've probably heard me talk about nail the mix before and if you're a member you already know how amazing it is at the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, 
Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low-end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. Joe Scaletta just invited you to speak. I'm back. Welcome back. This might be a bit of a broad question, but I know a lot of people here might be tracking in home studios, so less than ideal rooms. And let's just kind of keep the focus for vocals. What are some things that you notice can be done wrong in a bedroom studio in terms of uh, tracking vocals. And I'm asking you not because I think you're an expert in like acoustics, but more you're an expert in capturing the sounds. So what's something that someone can do or what is a common issue that you find in bedroom studios in terms of tracking vocals and how can they correct it at the source or in the space? Don't lie down on the bed while tracking vocals. That's actually the main one. (laughs) Yeah, it or it should be. I've seen it happen. It was more fun than it was good. I think that depending on the room, I mean, sure, reflections are bad if you don't want reflections. So how do you stay away from re- reflections? I think that sometimes people see, and this goes for a lot of things when, when recording, sometimes people see something on a picture and they think oh, that's how you do it. I'm going to do that too. And then, again, they're enforcing something that doesn't work just because they have that mindset or they thought that this is going to work. They don't think about how does sound work? Like, no one has to be an expert to realize certain things. For instance, what's the point in dampening the mic on the other uh, other end of the mic away from the vocalist when you have a reflective wall behind you when recording vocals. I see it done over and over and it just doesn't make sense. Um, And placing the mic in a way that looks kind of sexy, but it doesn't work if you just think about it for a minute. Sometimes it's the most weird solution that works if you spend some time moving around, but also thinking like what does the mic point at, uh, what is the mic hearing, and just not what the camera is seeing. I think that's a 
big mistake people do. So you're saying kind of think not just about what the the direction that the singer is facing, but also the direction that the microphone is facing? Yeah, because it's all about the microphone. It's not about... I mean, if the singer is in an awkward position, but it makes it sound 10 times better, maybe there's a middle ground, but if they had to choose, what would you choose? What sounds best. Yeah, so that's the one. But Thank you so much. Jacob, I think the point you brought up about people seeing pictures of things and then just trying to recreate them based off of a picture when they don't even know what it sounds like is really, really key. And it kind of also goes back to what we were talking about, uh, well, what I was mentioning with uh, Kieran before about intentionality. Mm. If you're going to treat a room, uh, you know, for vocals, uh, bedroom, so it's a makeshift treatment, uh, do it with intention and with purpose. Don't just throw shit up there because you saw photos of somebody doing that. Like There should be a problem you're actually trying to solve and a result that you're actually after with everything that you're doing. Yeah, totally. And also buying, buying acoustic treatment and doing something that you saw in a photo. I mean, sometimes people do it because they saw a photo of someone else doing it just as badly, but he did it. Yeah, but it didn't work then either. Yeah, you can't hear the photo. Yeah, it's the same with overheads, I think. It's a, it's a very common thing that people just place overheads in a very sexy way that based on how they saw it on a, on a, um, in a photo or maybe even a sales photo or an advertisement for mics. Of course, they're going to place it nicely, but that's not how you... Like if I would put, if I would set up a drum kit in the most good-looking way and not play on it, it wouldn't look like it would be set up if I would play on it. Same goes for mics or acoustic treatments or mic placement or where you stand in your bedroom or whatever. Yeah, if you think about the most badass death metal drum set setup with eight million things on it and everything super close together and it just looks like a beast, that's not going to be the best sounding thing to record. No. Uh, you know, as opposed to a drum set that's got a lot fewer things on it that are spread out super wide apart and with lots of space between them. What's photogenic is not necessarily what sounds best. I mean, it even goes for that classic joking about vocalists holding the mic in a way that looks cool, but it makes the sound unworkable and it's every live technician's nightmare basically because they're cupping the mic like everyone knows that meme everyone's seen it and then everyone goes home and does the same mistake but with other instruments yep absolutely okay next up we've got toby up next welcome back i've never actually tried tuning drums and i know that's obviously something that uh, you jacob have been really really good at if I wanted to learn drums, obviously we've got the fast tracks, which teach us how to do it, but I want to actually physically practice. What would you recommend as being the first shell to pick up? Would you recommend getting a kick, a snare or a tom? Huh. Well, given that you are in a space where you can make a lot of sound, I would go with the snare. It's the loudest thing in a drum mix usually, but it's also, it's the thing that is played with the most dynamics because you have ghost notes and you have build-ups and it's in a way toms kind of compress themselves in a way but it's i think snare is so versatile and important and especially since 
there are so many ways to make a snare sound like a snare and it's still a good snare. Like, is it going to be short? Is it going to be ringy? Is it going to be low? Is it going to be high? Is it going to be short but with reverb on it? Is it going to be short without reverb on it? Is it going to be long ringy with or without reverb? Like, all all those things matter so much. I would definitely start with a snare drum. Cool. And just a very quick follow-up question. Do you think it's like for just learning to tune on, do you think it, it matters whether you buy a cheap snare or do you think it'd be better to go for a mid-level snare? I would go for a good drum head, most of all. A, a super expensive snare with a bad drum head doesn't, it doesn't matter. But if it's a decent snare, that and by, by decent I mean it can be a beginner snare. Like today, snare drums or drums in general are so well manufactured compared to drums 30 years ago um, and even before that. And they all stay in shape and they're all round and they all have nice bearing edges. Uh, so I think any decent snare will actually do, because most of that ring that you're trying to work with comes from the head. And this is from someone who owns 35 snares here in the studio. So um, I, of course I think it, I mean, I wouldn't have them if it didn't matter but I think that the, the the learning, the tuning, it's about finding a snare that just, you know, does the job and then you learn tuning on that. And then after that, you can apply that on other snares and realize what the difference is and how their tuning ranges vary and what you can bring out of a certain snare drum, et cetera, et cetera. But the whole learning to tune thing it's just about finding a decent drum and do the work. Uh, you just you just keep doing it. Thanks, Toby. Okay, next up, we have got Mr. John Maciel. How's it going, Jacob? How's it going, Al? Uh, good, good. How are you? Doing well, doing well. It's uh, Tuesday, so it's a good day. Taco Tuesday. All right, so I got like a two-parter question for you, Jacob, and I want to like preface this question with uh, the scope of a lot of the students and you mentioned how you were tracking the drums for full and you knew the drums were going to go off to uh, someone else to mix which ended up being uh, Jacob and it sounds like you have experience in that realm of tracking and then knowing that that product is going to go to someone else for mixing etc and I some of our students don't have that type of experience or in, don't know what exactly that type of relationship is and building that with producers so my first question is when working with new mixers or producers and you're in the engineer seat what are the types of conversation that you have with not only the producer the band and the potential mixer to help solidify the vision as an engineer to keep your sanity and make sure that eight voices turns into one cohesive vision at the tracking stage and then the second part to that question is when working with repeat mixers how many times uh does it take working with them until you kind of have a flow where you already know their expectations so when you call them to say hey i'm gonna this is kind of what i'm thinking for this record what do you think and they're just like yeah sounds great let's go for it huh well i guess let's start with the first part if it's someone i worked with before it's easy of course but let's say it's someone new and i haven't worked with them and maybe i haven't even sometimes heard things they've done that doesn't matter they're bad mixers it just means that i haven't worked with them before but i'm sh like usually if there's a reason why the band wants that person to mix and there's a reason why they want me to produce um certain parts of it sometimes it's a co-production like 
me and Jacob have done it, me and Roberto have done it, other people have done it with too. And even then, if it's a co-production, which is even more things happening, um, it's it's it it always comes back to the song, the vision for the song, the vision for the music, and people having to realize that they have to put their egos aside. I don't really feel that the people I work with when it comes to other producers and mixers and you know, other people in the production team have those kind of egos where that's ever a problem. I, I've never really experienced it so far. And if there is an issue and I have to be the one to collect everyone, basically, uh, and it doesn't have to do, it doesn't have to do with ego. Sometimes it's just either a misunderstanding or not th- people not thinking enough about who, what person has what role. You just sit down and talk it out, like everything, like every relationship, basically. You just have the guts to sit down and have that, that talk and, and just talk it out and see what, what, where the problem is or if there is a problem. Usually there's not. Usually when I'm approached, I want to know, what is my role? Do you want me to produce? Do you want me to engineer? Do you want me to do like something in between? Do, do I work? with a band on the production side? Do I work with this other person on the production side? Who's going to mix it? Then I talk with that person. What do you want? Like, I, th- I think it all comes down to just talking. And when that happens, there's never any problem, really. I'm sorry if that's a boring answer. No, but it's the truth. Uh, it's amazing how many problems happen because people are just unwilling to talk about things. His second part was how many times you need to work with someone like a mixer or something to where you're just on the same page from the very beginning. Maybe it's that person that, but maybe it's sometimes the band, but sometimes it's just instant, instant love. I don't, I really don't have a good answer for that question. I mean, yeah, it just, it's going to be different with everybody. Yeah. All right. Next up, everyone's favorite, uh, Robin Lejean. Well, I have like kind of maybe a big question regarding like processing on the way in when you record drums as we have talked about before today when like sending drums to other mixes for example like jacob do you like do different processing for those guys like if you for example know that jacob likes his kick drums a little bit brighter do you like brighten the kick drum up on the way in or do you process the drums harder if you know that the end goal of the recording is that the drums needs to sound more natural so people like the mixer himself is not going to do much processing like within the mix. Jacob Hansen, who I think is an amazing everything person, mixer, hair model. Specimen. Yeah, right. He's giving me one of the biggest compliments of my career, I think. He, he once said that I love mixing your stuff because, you know, you just have to turn the faders up and start mixing and not starting to notch things or... EQ things just to get it in a place where I can start mixing. And I think that's my goal when I record, no matter who it is mixing. I, th- I, I always want to, you know, serve the song and serve the band and serve the person mixing because I love working with people and I want that person to, just like that, you know, raise the faders and go, oh yeah, I, I see where this is going. I think this, I, ca- I can see the kind of vision happening here. So... In, in one way, I do. In another way, 
I mean, of course, if if I'm the one mixing, I may be a little bolder on the way in, and if it's another way, uh, other person mixing, maybe I'll back it off a bit and play it more safely. But at the same time, uh, not only do I want to serve that person with tracks that are something that is ready to mix straight away, but also serving the song and serving the band's sound or the sound we have decided that we want. So I always I always try to to shape that in a way that that I think works. But of course, I have to think about the person mixing. I can't just think about what I want. I also have to think about all these different parts of a, of a production, me, the song, the band, the other person mixing, etc. Yeah, so that's why like if it's, for example, like a more raw recording, it's like necessary or... Yeah, but sometimes when it's a... If it's a raw recording, I, I even have to think about that more because then I really have to bring out the sound we want instead of that person having to guess uh, what the what the vision is. But if it's going to be a super processed sound, it's more about... It's, it's still the same work progress, but you can play it safer because you know some things are going to hap- happen in the mix that doesn't happen when it's a raw recording. But even... Like for someone like Buster Odeholm, when he did the drums here, uh, the Vildjarter drums, it's um, very much a, th- a thought uh, process be- between the two of us because he played the drums, but he's also the guy who's going to mix them or was going to mix them. They're done now. And then all those decisions had to go in. Like he had to wear two different hats together with me in that process, which worked out pretty freaking good. Awesome. Thanks, Robin. All right, so Joe Scaletta, you're up. I wanted to take your answer to Toby's question and kind of expand on it a little bit further where Toby said, should I get a cheap drum or a mid-tier drum? And you said, get a good drum head. Assuming rock and metal, what are your go-to drum heads, go-to cymbals, go-to guitar strings, and go-to bass strings? Okay, my go-to snare head is actually the Remo CS Dot, which is basically a coded ambassador with a dampening an extra layer of dampening ring in the middle, in the center of the head on the underside. And um, I, I use that extensively. It's the same head that's used on the Vola recordings. It adds some barkiness to the drum. I don't think, it's weird that it makes that big of a difference, but it really does. But at the same time, it's got all those nice overtones that you want in an ambassador that are out in the outer part of the drum head towards the rim. But for, yeah, for, for, for resonant heads on toms, for instance, I almost always use either coded or clear ambassadors. But when it comes to uh, batter heads, I think there's, and this is going to be a long answer or ex- expanded answer. I think that there are, again, we're back to this thing that looks good or that you see in a commercial or when there's a, I mean, the, the drum head manufacturers want to sell drum heads. Uh, they want the, the drums to sound good in a rehearsal studio. Uh, the Power Stroke 3 for bass drum always sounds great live or in a rehearsal studio, but in a studio, I almost never use, use it because I don't think it sounds that good because it's too pre-processed. That dampening ring just makes it, you know, even if, no matter how you tune it, it's, it's, it just stays rigid and I can't really work with it or dampen it the way I want to. 
And the same goes for Tom Heads. One of my favorite Tom Heads is the clear ambassador, but every, you know, when you buy drum heads, every salesman or whatever is going to say that, oh, that's for jazz, but it's not. It's, it's, I've done some very angry and aggressive sounding metal recordings with clear ambassadors on the toms because it's got so much projection and so much volume compared to, for instance, emperors or uh, pinstripes, but they, they do wear out quicker, but that's not an issue sometimes. So I don't really have any go-tos for toms. It can be emperors, it can be ambassadors coded or clear it can be pinstripes if you want that low thuddy shorter sound or focus sound without any overtones and same goes for bass drum i think it's i think it's more about what sound you're going for and and having that vision before you do it and deciding based on what what you want and not what you have and what about guitar strings or bass strings uh the new ones (laughs) the fresh ones I don't know. Usually I don't have that same opinions about it. It's because it's more about no no guitar player wants to change string model anyway. Uh, and it goes so much together with how their playing feels like or how they think that their guitar th- sounds like and how he feels to play and how the amp responds. But if they're if they're new, I'm happy, and you know, not crap. It's kind of what makes all the difference. Thank you, Joe. I feel like with bass strings, it makes a much bigger difference than guitar strings. I will say that. Oh yeah, it's um, a huge difference, and uh, sometimes you have to find that right level of like, do you want them brand new, or should I play for a week or a day? And usually, it's you know, three hour new. It's usually a good one for me, but it depends on the bass player. Sometimes it's brand new strings that are required, and that also means changing the strings. Every two hours? Yeah, in between songs, depending on the bass and the sound you're looking for, basically. But, I mean, old strings is great for certain styles, but not metal at all. Yeah, absolutely not. All right, well, Jacob, thank you very much. We are out of time. I want to thank you for taking the time to hang out with us and thank everybody in the crowd for hanging out with us. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. I hope everyone had fun with the, with the Vola tracks and uh, looking forward to Jacob's mix. I mean, Jacob is a fantastic mixer, but I think, I think he killed it on this Vola album for sure. When does he not kill it? I know. It's kind of annoying, really. It's crazy. All right, dude. Have a good one. Thank you. Thank you. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at ALLEVYURM Audio at URM Academy and of course tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at urm.academy and use the subject line, answer me, al. All right then, till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.